2: All engines are started.
0: That looks really good.
2: So we'd like it
3: to
4: uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh,
0: wow, it's going up so slowly.
3: The
5: state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television
4: devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah? Welcome
1: to Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson in partnership with the Naked Scientists. And let's start with a bit of drama. Remember this?
4: Touchdown confirmed. We're safe on Mars. <laughs>
1: on 5th of August 2012, NASA landed its Curiosity rover on Mars. In 2021, It's going to try it again with a new rover.
0: But NASA's rover won't be the only one. The first European rover is due to land around the same time. Both have a similar objective, the search for past or present life on Mars. And in this month's podcast, we'll be meeting the project scientists for NASA's new rover and talking about its European competition. We'll also hear from British European Space Agency astronaut Tim Peake, yay, about the challenges of driving a rover from the space station and what it's like to land In a Soyuz.
6: It's quite violent. The the capsule is bounced around underneath, it spins, it swings, and that's when we're really thankful that we've got those molded seat liners because you hunker yourself down into your seat. You have your straps as absolutely as tight as you can get it.
1: And we've come to the perfect place for all this Mars. Uh, Well, as close as you can get to Mars on an industrial estate 30 miles north of London. This is the Mars Yard in Stevenage, where Airbus Defence and Space is testing the European Space Agency ESA Rover, which is due to be launched in 2020. And it's really just like a giant sand pit. But you look into the distance the Martian landscape stretches away to this dusty red horizon, this rocky terrain, and actually in front of us, Two rovers, they're, they're silent at the moment, not moving anywhere, but this is because it's Martian night time here. Actually, we, we can't actually find the light switch. That's the reason it's Martian night. It's a
0: Martian car park. It's a rover car park. Um, we've been here several times for podcasts, and I must admit, each time we come, I love it. There's just something... It is. It feels... Sandpits of the right word, because it feels like a lovely sort of scientific and engineering play area. And a perfect companion for that, because with us on Mars, is spacecraft engineer Abby Hutty, who's developing the structure. For the XMR's rover, and also space journalist, author, and astrophysicist Stuart Clark. Abby, we'll start with you. The uh, final design for ESA's rover is agreed.
2: So, how's it going? Yeah, it's definitely taking shape. We actually took delivery of the first model of our structure a couple of weeks ago, so that was really exciting. We're going to start putting that one together and then that goes through a lot of really extreme testing, vibration, thermal bake-out, that kind of thing, to check that we really do endure all of those conditions that we need to on Mars.
0: And this is one of your test arenas, basically. I mean, obviously you don't do the vibration stuff here, but um, reminders of of the sort of tests that, that go on in this room.
2: Okay, in the Mars Yard, we're really developing the autonomous navigation. So it's about what the rover sees, what obstacles it can climb over and whether it can make those right decisions. So in here we have the right kind of colours of rocks, distributions of rocks and slopes and sand and that kind of thing. And we're really demonstrating how we can interpret what's in front of us and plan a path correctly through that terrain.
0: Now, when we walked in here, um, Stuart noticed before we started recording that up on the ceiling there are all these different um, white squares with black circles, almost like radiation um Sort of logos, but instead of yellow and black, they're 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 white and black. I was convinced it might be an alien language, but it's not, is it? (laughs) Uh,
2: Disappointingly, no. It's actually just a way that we can work out how well we're doing with our navigation software in here. Each one is actually subtly different if you look at them carefully. They're like barcodes, and by looking at the array of them above your head from the rover, you can tell exactly where you are within the room, and then tell how well your navigation software has driven you around the room and how well you've worked out how you are versus how where you thought you would be that's what we're trying to do with those
1: and the point of these rovers what makes them the different is that they're meant to be autonomous they're meant to be able to figure things out for themselves rather than you literally driving them
2: yes well mars is such a long way away it takes between four and 24 minutes for a signal to reach mars if you're controlling them by remote control like you maybe would with a, a car here or something like that um It would just take such a long time, you'd be sitting still for such a lot of your time and that means that you're losing valuable science life. Our rovers will only last so long, our batteries degrade with time, all of those kind of things. So you really want to maximise your scientific potential while you're on the planet and you've got all of those great opportunities to really learn valuable things.
1: Now Stuart, the ExoMars project has been long. Are you impressed it finally seems to be coming together?
5: Oh yes, this is, this, this is almost like a dream come true really to see this um, project finally coming together partly because the ExoMars rover itself um, has these really bold ambitions to, to finally um, go back to Mars and look for the evidence of life. We're not, we're not mucking about anymore. We're not sort of having a look to see if there might have been water and if there could have been water, well maybe there was life. No, this time we're actually going to do it and that makes me very um, happy.
1: Well I've recently returned from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California where the American Mars 2020 is taking shape. 2020 because that's the year it will launch. Now the design is based on the Curiosity rover currently making its way up Mount Sharp on Mars and the rover is big, I mean really big, around the size of a small family car or Or if you prefer, sinister space alien with a towering stalk for its eyes, six limbs and a radioactive tail. I prefer that. Standing next to a full-size model of the rover, I spoke to project scientist Ken Farley and asked him why it
3: had to be so large. The main thing that motivates the size of it is it has to be able to drive across rugged terrain. So you need large wheels and uh, you also need to be able to carry a large number of science instruments and all the associated hardware. So it really does have to be this big. With this, I mean, the box itself with, with the
1: hardware in it and, and the various bits attached to it is is big. I mean, you could fit people in
3: that. Yeah, it's about the size of a pair of coffins side to side. It, it's a large device, and a lot of effort has been put into making it as small as it, it can be because you have to send it to Mars, so you don't want to send more than you have to. And uh, this is the size that works. What will be different about the new rover, then? Because, you know, as we said, it looks very similar. It, it, it appears to be capable of doing the same sort of things. It's capable of doing the same sort of things in much the same way that if you have a pickup truck, you can use it for many different kinds of applications. Our application is we have a different set of science goals than Curiosity did. We have a different set of science instruments, and we have an additional objective, which is to uh, collect and cache samples for possible return to Earth in the future. Now that's the arm at the the front so how will that work? What will you actually do? We have an objective of collecting about 35 samples that are about the size of a piece of chalk and these samples will be cored out of the ground using a rotary percussion drill they'll be drilled straight into an individual sample tube that tube will then be pulled into the rover from the arm and uh, will be processed in such a way that a cap is put on the tube and sealed. And then we carry a collection of samples until we reach a place where we wish to deposit them on the ground for a future mission to possibly come and pick them up. That's
1: extraordinary. Why not analyze them on the rover? Why not have a, you know, some sort of robotic laboratory?
3: We will have a collection of instruments on the rover that will allow us to characterize many of the properties of the rocks that we are studying and ultimately the rocks that we're collecting but the kinds of capabilities that are necessary to answer the questions that we have for example looking for life it's very hard to do with instruments that we can presently fly so we need the full complement of instruments that we have on earth to answer questions like that. So
1: really this is part of a succession of missions where you've got uh, you've had various rovers, you've got this, you're collecting the cores, and then the idea would be to have a future mission where you fly in, you take those cores back to Earth, this,
3: this sample return mission. This part of it hasn't been worked out very well. The Mars 2020 mission's goal is to prepare a cache, a collection of samples that are worthy of bringing back to the Earth. And there are ideas about how they will come back. Some are as simple as when the astronauts arrive at Mars, they will pick up the box and they will bring it back. The, the notion that is uh, most developed is that there will be a succession of missions that will follow. One will land near where the samples are. It will pick up the samples. It will put them on a rocket. That rocket will fire the samples into orbit. They will be orbiting until a third mission arrives and actually grabs the, what we call the orbiting sample and then sends it back to Earth. Do you think people appreciate that because how difficult this stuff is, that you have to build up in a succession of missions? I think if you, if you look at movies like The Martian, it all seems really easy. Uh, it isn't easy. And I think one important aspect of Mars 2020 and the possible campaign of missions that follow is that they are the pathfinder for sending humans. It will be a much smaller scale with much lower risks that are involved, but we still have to land on the surface launch back off of the surface, and get back to Earth. So it's a, it's a proving ground for how to do that. Well,
1: it so happens we have an astronaut here with us, Ron Garan. My...
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> what do you feel about this this progression of missions to to go to Mars and how far away the idea of humans on Mars is?
4: Well, I think one of the key points that, that Ken brought up was when we start to explore other bodies in the solar system, whether we go back to the moon or to Mars, to some extent we're going to have to live off the land if you will we're going to have to make use of resources that are located along our journey so I think um, what these uh, robotic missions are doing one of the many things that they're doing is is starting to look at the feasibility of using in situ resources for space exploration. so um, when are we going to have humans on Mars? Uh, you know I think it's going to be you know probably... 15 years you know 10 10 to 20 years let's say from the time we decide to go and that's the key thing from the time we decide to go so that means we've not only said we're going to go to Mars but we've allocated the resources and we've developed the program and we we've got you know the infrastructure started to 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 get there I think um, you know that's that's feasible but if we never make that decision uh, we never cross that line then you know it's going to be an it's going to be an infinite amount of time before we get to Mars we have to make the decision to go But talking to Ken, I mean, you know, can't even bring
1: back a tiny test tube-sized sample of material from Mars. There's a long way to go before you can bring back an astronaut
4: from Mars. That's correct, Um, and you know, it it depends on the on the scale of the program, right? It would need an Apollo-like program to, uh, you know, a program of that size, of that magnitude to be able to accomplish the engineering and the, and the programs, pro- programmatics that we would need to, to, to make it all happen. Would you go? I would go on a round trip. I wouldn't go, you know, there's a lot of people who say they would volunteer on a one-way trip. I, I, I would not go on a one-way trip, no, but I would be happy to go on a, on a round trip. And, Ken, can,
1: can you keep up the momentum with this succession of, of missions to actually get a Ron Garan to Mars? I'm oh, well.
3: back. <laughs> there are a, there are a large number of really great science questions and whether it's uh, exploration with robotic missions to places like Mars or parts of the outer solar system there are many grand questions to be addressed. When you consider sending humans to Mars it seems like a, an incredibly complicated task and it is but it would have looked very similar 20 years ago to, to landing a rover this big on Mars and until people put their mind to it, nothing gets done. But when you decide you're going to do it, you break that incredibly complicated task into a series of steps that are all individually manageable. And a good example of that is the way Curiosity landed in this, what people call the crazy series of events that have to happen to land. But every one of those was was put together for a very specific reason and all worked together. And you're confident you can you can do
1: it again with this one? I'm as confident as I can be. Ken Farley, project scientist for NASA's Mars 2020 rover you also heard from surprise astronaut there, Ron Garan, Uh, he happened to be passing because he's actually presenting a programme we're making on the Voyager missions for the BBC World Service more on that later this summer Uh, Stuart, I mean he almost admitted there that this isn't all thought through, they're kind of taking it one mission at a time but they've not worked out what they're going to do with this cache of samples
5: Yes and I think that's that's just the state of the art at NASA at the moment. There's no long-term commitment here, no real political will to go and explore Mars um, with, with, with humans. And, and so you're left in this situation where you just have to make the, the best of the crumbs and sort of exist from one mission to the next. And in some ways, I think, doing the caching is trying to say, look, we've done half the work of a sample return mission, we just need to go and get it back. Now, that's not quite true, of course, um, but it's a way of trying to force momentum uh, into this programme.
1: So if you can say to the politicians, we've got these 35 samples stacked up on Mars, they could reveal life, give us the money.
5: That's exactly right. That's that's, that's what's happening here, I think.
0: Abby, when you hear, you know, you're sort of counterpart it almost you know across the pond talking about as is often the case with Americans a much bigger rover than you've got here and and that we've got in front of us how does that make you feel?
2: (laughs) We just have a very different approach here and Our rovers, actually, if you look at them, are much more comparable in size to Spirit and Opportunity than they are to Curiosity. So they're probably a third of the size, roughly, uh, that Curiosity or the 2020 mission will be. And we believe that we can do a good proportion of the science that we want to do on board the rover. So our rover's mission is actually aimed at going and doing the science there on the surface. So it's interesting to hear him say that... Uh, they have taken a different approach and that they want to bring those samples back to analyse them. We're more about miniaturising the instruments that we can do to take with us and do that science there.
0: So we're a sort of more petite european size (laughs) outfit here. Uh, Do do you see it? I mean, I know that there's a huge amount of collaboration, um, and even on ExoMiles between NASA and and the European Space Agency, ESA. Do you see this as a, a collaboration, or do you find that the work that you're doing here is... Completely um, on your own in terms of the design and what we've eventually got in your prototypes.
2: There's definitely a lot of collaboration. I mean, NASA are supplying some of the instruments that will go on ExoMars. We do like to work together, we do like to share our resources and and minimise the development costs for both nations by collaborating and sharing instruments, sharing expertise where possible. But we have taken a very different design philosophy with our rover and therefore there isn't actually that much crossover in what we can and can't exchange that would be useful to either party. So actually we are doing a a vast majority of the development work um, uh, independently.
1: Uh, Ken made a good point there about how far the agency has come since the, the early row of Pathfinder. I mean, that's, what, 97?
5: Uh, yes, that's right. And, and when you look in hindsight at the, at the Mars exploration programme at NASA, you know, it's an impressive thing. Uh, with the European Mars exploration programme as well, um, that also is amazing at how fast um, Europe has caught up and and this should put us in a very good position to collaborate and do science together. We just wait to see whether the, that, that becomes true or not.
1: Now, in the last podcast, we spoke to an astrobiologist at NASA, and he, he didn't care about Mars anymore. He was really into Enceladus. That's where he wanted to go. That's where he wanted to fly the experiments. Where he wanted to look for life.
0: But also, that could possibly be because, apart from the life question, it's more about if you're talking robotics, because the emphasis is so much on human space flight to Mars. That 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 could be why is just let look. Let's just concentrate on the on on the unmanned spacecraft because they're the ones really that are realistically and with a chance
5: yes and i think here is where i'm just going to be unapologetically european here and and the payload the the remote sensing payload and the laboratory work that goes is going on to the exomars rover all that stuff can be packaged to go to europa or to go to Enceladus. And so we're stealing a march here on actually doing astrobiology in the outer solar system.
0: Do you think NASA should just give up going to Mars or sending humans to Mars? I feel as though I know what the answer's going to be. <laughs> um,
5: well, they either have to put up or shut up. I think that's, that's the situation we're in. I mean, it might just be because, you know, I'm increasingly becoming old and jaded, but uh, I'm just kind of a bit fed up of hearing about we're going to Mars when there's no money, no programme, no nothing.
0: Well I, I know a way to perk you up <laughs> which is to talk and I don't know whether you've seen it, um Abby, this Batmobile that has gone on display at the Kennedy Space Centre, which they are calling a Mars rover, even though it's designed by people who are effectively automobile people. I mean oh yeah. Wow, Stuart's just shown a picture
2: quite a beast <laughs> it is a I batmobile mean, it, it looks cool but um wow that that, that ain't no mars rover. no <laughs> well that, that's,
0: i think they practically do admit that it, it's not fit for purpose effectively there's they actually have lots of caveats that include there's no way this could go to mars so i i don't quite see the point. What, what, what do you think of it?
5: Yeah. So, what what is actually going on here? I mean, I mean, we, we should be we should point out that it's it, it's it's an exhibit that's going on a tour for the um, Summer of Mars that they're having, um, which is to raise awareness about the possibility of sending humans to Mars. And that's fine to that extent. You're trying to sort of uh, increase the support on the ground from, from from taxpayers that want to see this happen. But at the same time, my goodness gracious me, how far are NASA away from where they used to be? They're now commissioning um, concept vehicles from companies that build these things for science fiction films to try to raise interest in going to Mars.
0: It's even been reviewed by automobile websites and publications, which, as you said, that's no aer- rover, it is a concept car.
2: But then we've always had the case that science fiction inspires science and we need to maybe have that vision and that really blue skies thinking to recapture the imagination of the public and to get people dreaming, to get people to actually want to embrace these things and pay for these things as well.
0: Well there has been a suggestion hasn't there that basically it's more like the um, the Martian so it's capitalising on science fiction um, with more science fiction in order to hopefully do the science.
2: Well absolutely why not I mean let's use any resources that are that are available to us to, to maximise what we can do?
5: I think the one thing that now absolutely has to happen is that um, NASA has to be decoupled from the political process in America, that we have to have administrators that can last longer than presidential terms. And so that way, it's, NASA's not just a political football. I mean, essentially what it is now is a jobs creation agency rather than almost rather than a space exploration agency.
0: Stuart and Abby thanks for the moment still to come we'll be talking well we it's Richard really I'm extremely jealous we'll be talking to British East astronaut Tim Peake about his attempt to control a Mars rover what it's like to land in a Soyuz I think I know the answer to that it'll be painful and training for a future mission.
1: This is Space Boffins. we're in partnership with The Naked Scientists.
0: You can reach us on Facebook and Twitter on our Facebook page right now. Video from Saturn, Richard in Total Recall. Uh, We'll put some pictures up from JPL and uh, that uh, concept car stroke Batmobile rover and uh, also from our recording here today. Even though it's dark, it'll be uh, the Mars yard at night.
1: It'll be spooky. It's Mars at night. so They're not going anywhere. They're solar powered. They're not moving. Uh, The Mars Yard here at Airbus now has an education centre and viewing gallery where students from local schools can learn about space and see the rovers in action. The new facilities were opened by ESA astronaut Tim Peake, who returned from the International Space Station almost exactly a year ago. I recently caught up with Tim and started by asking him about the difficulties he experienced during his mission when he had to drive a Mars rover here in Stevenage from a control console on the ISS.
6: It all depends on the sensors that you have available on the vehicle itself. So it's sometimes very hard to see what's close to the wheels, for example. So uh, you might be able to uh, have a camera that's looking forward three feet away from the, the vehicle, but that's no help to you if there are rocks that are immediately in the vicinity. So you need to have a good sensor suite around the, the vehicle. Uh, so that was sometimes challenging, not having a good visual field uh, of the obstacles that were in the way. And then there was the disruption of the communication uh, uh, on occasions, which meant that commands were being delayed or interrupted, and then that reduces your ability to control the vehicle as well. So these are the kind of challenges that we're we're working through so that we can really be accurately able to remotely control a vehicle on another planet from a spacecraft.
1: And that is likely to be the future of a lot of human space exploration is is astronauts like you working alongside with with robotic technology.
6: That's right. If you think about the Mars scenario, for example, it makes sense uh, rather than incurring a possible eight-minute delay controlling a rover from Earth to Mars, then if you can have the astronauts uh, who are in orbit or on transit to Mars, they can be dealing with much shorter delays and therefore they have much better control over those rovers.
1: Now, this morning you saw your cat for the first time since you'd seen it in Kazakhstan. It is terribly charred. Can you just give us a sense of what that re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere is like? So I've talked to a few people who've flown in the Soyuz and there are various descriptions, some of them not broadcastable.
6: (laughs) (laughs) The re-entry is, uh, for me, I thought was the most, uh, certainly the most dynamic phase of the mission, but also the most... Dynamic? dynamic. (laughs) 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 Um, uh, Well... The, the launch is, is is almost graceful, the launch. I, I mean, it's um, it's exciting and it's powerful and you get this huge sensation of acceleration and speed, certainly in the third stage of the rocket launch. The capsule is now in space and it's almost horizontal and, and it's all about getting up to Mach 25 to remain in orbit. And you really feel that sensation of acceleration and speed. You kind of, when's it going to stop? You know, this can't keep going on like this. Uh, and then finally the main engine cuts out and you're in orbit. But then you have six months of dealing with a, a very graceful situation in microgravity. Floating around is very peaceful, very calm, and even though you're very aware that the space station is is moving fast across, you know, with 16 orbits a day, you can't possibly uh, be unaware that you're moving quickly. But it's also very graceful. You don't really get a huge sensation of speed from the space station. And so having been in that scenario for six months and your body is completely adapted to zero gravity, to then come back and experience all the experience explosions that go ahead with a re-entry the, the spacecraft separating the suddenly feeling accelerations because of the motors firing and then finally the earth's atmosphere starts to pick you up and you get that gradual building of g as you decelerate through the earth's atmosphere that stage is not really violent but it is the the g build-up is is very firm and you you kind of get to about five to six g's of deceleration which is quite a lot after six months in in microgravity and it's very very hot and then the the, the braking chute opens the brake Shoot followed by three drogue shoots, and that's when it's quite violent. The, the capsule is bounced around underneath, it spins, it swings, and that's when we're really thankful that we've got those molded seat liners. Because you hunker yourself down into your seat, you have your straps as absolutely as tight as you can get it. And a good tip that Yuri Malenchenko, my commander, said to, to both Tim and I, he said, use the, use the deceleration, use that G's to tighten the straps as, as tight as you possibly can, because that's what's going to keep you in your seat and, and pre- prevent any injury from occurring. So that's a very violent phase as the parachute is opening. It takes about 20 seconds in total. And then once you're under the main canopy, you get about a 15-second respite whilst you're just coming down to earth before of course the impact of of landing
1: now i was in the mission control center at huntsville in alabama and they were actually talking to you at the the time i was there and they would talk about the two tims because you were up there with tim copra Mm -hmm. the amount you were getting done they were very impressed with you always seem to be ahead of your your timeline was that almost a daily competition to get as much done as possible
6: and to cram in all the outreach you did as well well, yes, I, I, you, do te- you temper that, though, with working accurately. And I think everybody would prefer to work accurately rather than quickly. That's always the mantra. If you can do it quickly, then that's a, that's a bonus. But I think everybody in the program would rather you worked accurately than quickly. What happens, of course, is the longer you're up there, then you become very efficient about planning your day, about how, knowing how the space station operates, where everything is, gathering all the tools, gathering equipment, stowing it away again. There are tricks to becoming a good operator. Tim and I had the benefit of getting on board and um, being briefed by Scott Kelly. He was already eight months into his year-long stay. So there was nobody better to learn from. He knew that space station inside out. So we learned from the master in that respect, and Scott really trained us up very well, very quickly. So Tim and I were very, we were able to get into a very good working re- regime and a quick uh, operating flow. And that just helps the program. You know, the, the astronauts are the most vital uh, resource in terms. of of cost and and expenditure on the space station you know we have to work to get the the productivity done so um, the the more work you can get done the better
1: and what are you doing now in terms of the coming I mean you're still sort of on the mission in, in a way and and in terms of training now
6: we're constantly working um, towards the, the next missions in terms of training and, and also in supporting the current missions. So my job over the next couple of years is actually going to be primarily in a support role for Paolo, who uh, launches later this year in the summer, followed by Alex Gerst next year, followed by Luca Parmitano. So uh, you know all of those astronauts need a huge amount of support for their missions, and that's part of our job as uh, astronauts is to provide that supporting role.
1: Now you will fly again we don't know we don't know when it's a chance it might not be in a Soyuz it might be in one of the other spacecraft is that something that you might end up looking at training in
6: Absolutely, yes. uh, Currently, commercial crew vehicles are expected to come online at some time between 2018 and 2019. And the European Space Agency procures its uh, seats through NASA, which means that it's likely that most European astronauts uh, beyond 2019 will be flying in one of the new commercial crew vehicles. That's either the SpaceX vehicle or the Boeing vehicle. So it could certainly involve training on one of those vehicles.
1: So you're looking forward to the the next few years. I imagine you can't wait to go back into to space, can you?
6: Absolutely. There's a, it's a hugely exciting time coming up. I mean, I, I mentioned about this transition to new, two new uh, vehicles that are going to carry astronauts into space. At the same time, during my mission, we had the first um, commercial module attached to the space station, the Bigelow module. That's going to go from strength to strength. We might we might even, by the end of the decade, see the first commercial space station in orbit. The space station will go on to 2024, but right now we're focusing on what's going to happen beyond that. With the deep space mission, with NASA's Orion program, of which the European Space agency is a is a big part of that, and so it, it's, it's a very exciting future. There's going to be a lot happening in the next few years. Tim Peake, anyone want to fly in a
1: Soyuz?
2: Really, rather not. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Stu, absolutely not.
2: Uh, I would.
0: No. Really?
1: Yeah. I guess. I, I mean, another description I've heard from uh, another East astronaut. Uh, he described it as going over a a waterfall in a barrel that was on fire, followed by a car crash.
0: Yeah, but I used to drive a Nissan Micro, so it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: There's a lot of excitement, um, Stuart, about NASA getting back into having its own spacecraft. Well, actually, strictly speaking, not its own spacecraft, but buying in American spacecraft rather than relying on the Soyuz.
5: Yes, here's where I um, become optimistic, having spent a lot of this programme being very pessimistic about NASA, actually. And I I hope that the new um, collaborations with private industry um, really rejuvenate the American space programme and put them centre stage in leading the world once again um, and taking us out there.
0: Oh, I agree completely. And uh, in a way, the, the technology that you demonstrated here in Stevenage Abbey, that could be used by these private companies, uh, in terms of uh, operating a rover on the moon. Would you here be able to you know, turn your talents to the same thing in terms of uh, making a rover for the moon? Would it be an easy switch to make?
2: There are some things that are similar, some things that are different. So obviously you've got to work out where you've got things that you can use and and what things are not useful to you. So on Mars, we've got a very, very extreme temperature environment. We've got a a little bit of atmosphere, but not very much. Uh, So you have dust storms and things like that. On the Moon, you don't have that because there's no wind. But you do have the very extreme temperatures because you're basically just in space, in the void of space. So when you're in the sunlight, you get very hot. Uh, When you're in eclipse, You're very, very cold. So, in terms of the materials technology and the actual construction of the vehicle that we've done to keep the temperature within um, and kind of insulate all of your instruments, that would be very useful. All of that development we could almost directly read across. The actual driving mechanics we could almost directly read across. There's even less gravity on the moon, so any kind of shocks and impacts will be felt. Less severely on the moon, so definitely, if we we just transposed our our rover onto the moon, it would effectively be a lot stronger. It'd be able to endure um, a lot more. So yes, we could use all of that. I mean, the autonomous technology that we're talking about here actually isn't as useful on the moon because the moon's a lot closer so it's only a few seconds delay so really you could remote control it from the earth um, without losing so much of your science life Um, although yes we could also use it just to um, find efficiencies there so there's a lot of similarities there's a few subtle differences and we could make it work. Do you you see
1: it as feasible this idea that you would have astronauts in orbit say around Mars controlling a rover on the surface so having that sort of real-time Feedback, rather than all the palaver we've been talking about earlier of trying to land and get off again?
2: Well, the way that I personally see it, I've always envisaged this idea, would be if you are going to send humans to Mars, you need to construct a habitat, an environment within which you're going to live before you get down onto the surface. You don't want to be exposed on the surface to that radiation that you're experiencing there any longer than you have to be. So there are two ways to do that. One is either to create it months or years in advance of sending the humans there in the first place um, in which case you'd be controlling your rovers either completely autonomously on the surface or um, with some kind of link up to the earth with that signal delay. So they'd
1: be building it for you?
2: Yeah, or you could wait and until your astronauts are basically in orbit around the planet and they could be controlling the rovers with no signal delay, effectively, um, but then they're in space and suffering all of the effects of that extended duration in space while they're waiting for the habitat to be built. That's the way that I expect that it would work if, if you got into that situation.
1: So, Stuart, will this happen? Go on, no. put your optimistic hat on. I'll, I'll put my optimistic hat on.
5: It's, it's highly conceivable that I think you could see some level of, uh, of sort of operation from orbit of rovers um, around either the Moon or Mars. Uh, because there, there seems to be that huge hurdle of getting astronauts to the surface and then back up from the surface. You know, you, you sort of remove that. So it all depends on what the funding profile looks like for sending humans to mars and whether they feel confident that they have the technology to safely deliver them to the surface and back up again
0: at the moment though i would say the smart money
2: is on the european space agency and and rovers like we've got here would you agree abby Well, you can do so much with a rover, and one of the key things for me is we're looking for life on Mars. If we send humans to Mars, we're going to take Earth life with us. We are going to contaminate Mars, and the second you have a human land on the surface, basically you can never really determine whether that life that you found on the surface has come from Earth, taken by that human, um, or whether it originated there in the first place. So we really want to answer these questions before we send humans there.
0: Abby Hutty from Airbus Defense and Space and Stuart Clark. Thank you both very much indeed. The Space Boffins podcast is a boffin media production supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. We're in partnership with the naked scientists. We've been on Mars. Thanks for listening. Botox Cosmetic, Adabotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic
2: is right for you.